Part two of the Old Man's from Mosses from an Old Man's and Other Stories by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Newfeld. Mosses from an Old Man's and Other Stories by Nathaniel Hawthorne. The Old Man's Part two. What with the river, the battlefield, the orchard, and the garden, the reader begins to despair of finding his way back to the old man's. But in agreeable weather, it is the truest hospitality to keep him out of doors. I never grew quite acquainted with my habitation till a long spell of sulky rain had confined me beneath its roof. There could not be a more sombre aspect of external nature than as then seen from the windows of my study. The great willow-tree had caught, and retained among its leaves, a whole cataract of water, to be shaken down at intervals by the frequent gusts of wind. All day long, and for a week together, the rain was drip-drip-dripping and splash-splash-splashing from the eaves, and bubbling and foaming into the tubs beneath the spouts. The old unpainted shingles of the house and outbuildings were black with moisture, and the mosses, of ancient growth upon the walls, looked green and fresh, as if they were the newest things and afterthought of time. The usually mirrored surface of the river was blurred by an infinity of raindrops. The whole landscape had a completely water-soaked appearance, conveying the impression that the earth was wet through like a sponge while the summit of a wooded hill, about a mile distant, was enveloped in a dense mist, where the demon of the tempest seemed to have his abiding-place, and to be plotting still direr inclemencies. Nature has no kindness, no hospitality during a rain. In the fiercest heat of sunny days she retains a secret mercy, and welcomes the wayfarer to shady nooks of the woods, whither the sun cannot penetrate but she provides no shelter against her storms. It makes us shiver to think of these deep umbrageous recesses, those overshadowing banks, where we found such enjoyment during the sultry afternoons. Not a twig of foliage there, but would dash a little shower into our faces. Looking reproachfully towards the impenetrable sky, if sky there be, above that dismal uniformity of cloud, we are apt to murmur against the whole system of the universe, since it involves the extinction of so many summer days in so short a life by the hissing and spluttering rain. In such spells of weather, and it is to be supposed such weather came, Eve's bower in paradise must have been but a cheerless and aguish kind of shelter, no wise comparable to the old parsonage which had resources of its own to beguile the week's imprisonment. The idea of sleeping on a couch of wet roses! Happy the man who, in a rainy day, can betake himself to a huge garret, stored like that of the manse with lumber that each generation has left behind it from a period before the Revolution. Our garret was an arched hall, dimly illuminated through small and dusty windows, it was but a twilight at the best, and there were nooks, or rather caverns, of deep obscurity, 
the secrets of which I never learned, being too reverent of their dust and cobwebs. The beams and rafters, roughly hewn, and with strips of bark still on them, and the rude masonry of the chimneys, made the garret look wild and uncivilized, an aspect unlike what was seen elsewhere in the quiet and decorous old house. But on one side there was a little whitewashed apartment, which bore the traditionary title of the saint's chamber, because holy men in their youth had slept and studied and prayed there. With its elevated retirement, its one window, its small fireplace, and its closet, convenient for an oratory, it was the very spot where a young man might inspire himself with solemn enthusiasm and cherish saintly dreams. The occupants, at various epochs, had left brief records and ejaculations inscribed upon the walls. There, too, hung a tattered and shriveled roll of canvas, which, on inspection, proved to be the forcibly wrought picture of a clergyman, in wig, band, and gown, holding a Bible in his hand. As I turned his face towards the light, he eyed me with an air of authority such as men of his profession seldom assume in our days. The original had been pastor of the parish more than a century ago, a friend of Whitefield, and almost his equal in fervent eloquence. I bowed before the effigy of the dignified divine, and felt as if I now met face to face with the ghost, by whom, as there was reason to apprehend, the manse was haunted. Houses of any antiquity in New England are so invariably possessed with spirits that the matter seems hardly worth alluding to. Our ghost used to heave deep sighs in a particular corner of the parlour, and sometimes rustled paper, as if he were turning over a sermon, in the long upper entry, where, nevertheless, he was invisible, in spite of the bright moonshine that fell through the eastern window. Not improbably, he wished me to edit and publish a selection from a chest full of manuscript discourses that stood in the garret. Once, while Hillard and other friends sat talking with us in the twilight, there came a rustling noise, as of a minister's silk gown, sweeping through the very midst of the company, so closely as almost to brush against the chairs. Still there was nothing visible. A yet stranger business was that of a ghostly servant-maid, who used to be heard in the kitchen at deepest midnight, grinding coffee, cooking, ironing, performing, in short, all kinds of domestic labor although no traces of anything accomplished could be detected the next morning. Some neglected duty of her servitude, some ill-starched ministerial band, disturbed the poor damsel in her grave, and kept her at work without any wages. But to return from this digression. A part of my predecessor's library was stored in the garret, no unfit receptacle, indeed, for such dreary trash as comprised the greater number of volumes. The old books would have been worth nothing at an auction. In this venerable garret, however, they possessed an interest quite apart from their literary value as heirlooms, many of which had been transmitted down through a series of consecrated hands from the days of the mighty Puritan divines. 
autographs of famous names were to be seen in faded ink on some of their fly-leaves and there were marginal observations or interpolated pages closely covered with manuscript in illegible shorthand perhaps concealing matter of profound truth and wisdom the world would never be the better for it a few of the books were latin folios written by catholic authors others demolished papistry as with a sledgehammer in plain english a dissertation on the book of job which only job himself could have had patience to read filled at least a score of small thick-set quartos at the rate of two or three volumes to a chapter then there was a vast folio body of divinity too corpulent a body it might be feared to comprehend the spiritual element of religion volumes of this form dated back two hundred years or more and were generally bound in black leather exhibiting precisely such an appearance as we should attribute to books of enchantment others equally antique were of a size proper to be carried in the large waistcoat pockets of old times diminutive but as black as their bulkier brethren and abundantly interfused with greek and latin quotations these little old volumes impressed me as if they had been intended for very large ones but had been unfortunately blighted at an early stage of their growth the rain pattered upon the roof and the sky gloomed through the dusty garret windows while i burrowed among these venerable books in search of any living thought which should burn like a coal of fire or glow like an inextinguishable gem beneath the dead trumpery that had long hidden it but i found no such treasure all was dead alike and i could not but muse deeply and wonderingly upon the humiliating fact that the works of man's intellect decay like those of his hands thought grows mouldy what was good and nourishing food for the spirits of one generation affords no sustenance for the next books of religion however cannot be considered a fair test of the enduring and vivacious properties of human thought because such books so seldom really touch upon their ostensible subject and have therefore so little business to be written at all so long as an unlettered soul can attain to saving grace there would seem to be no deadly error in holding theological libraries to be accumulations of for the most part stupendous impertinence many of the books had accrued in the latter years of the last clergyman's lifetime these threatened to be of even less interest than the elder works a century hence to any curious inquirer who should then rummage among them as i was doing now volumes of the liberal preacher and christian examiner occasional sermons controversial pamphlets tracts and other productions of a like fugitive nature took the place of the thick and heavy volumes of past time in a physical point of view there was much the same difference as between a feather and a lump of lead but intellectually regarded the specific gravity of old and new was about upon a par both also were alike frigid the elder books nevertheless seemed to have been earnestly written 
and might be conceived to have possessed warmth at some former period, although, with the lapse of time, the heated masses had cooled down even to the freezing point. The frigidity of the modern productions, on the other hand, was characteristic and inherent, and evidently had little to do with the writer's qualities of mind and heart. In fine, of this whole dusty heap of literature, I tossed aside all the sacred part, and felt myself none the less a Christian for eschewing it. There appeared no hope of either mounting to the better world on a Gothic staircase of ancient folios, or of flying thither on the wings of a modern tract. Nothing, strange to say, retained any sap except what had been written for the passing day and year, without the remotest pretension or idea of permanence. There were a few old newspapers, and still older almanacs, which reproduced, to my mental eye, the epics when they had issued from the press, with a directness that was altogether unaccountable. It was as if I had found bits of magic looking-glass among the books, with the images of a vanished century in them. I turned my eyes towards the tattered picture, above mentioned, and asked of the austere divine wherefore it was that he and his brethren, after the most painful rummaging and groping into their minds, had been able to produce nothing half so real as these newspaper scribblers and almanac-makers had thrown off in the effervescence of a moment. The portrait responded not, so I sought an answer for myself. It is the age itself that writes newspapers and almanacs, which therefore have a distinct purpose and meaning at the time, and a kind of intelligible truth for all times. Whereas most other works, being written by men who, in the very act, set themselves apart from their age, are likely to possess little significance when new, and not at all when old. Genius, indeed, melts many ages into one, and thus affects something permanent yet still with a similarity of office to that of the more ephemeral writer. A work of genius is but the newspaper of a century, or perchance of a hundred centuries. Lightly as I have spoken of these old books, there yet lingers with me a superstitious reverence for literature of all kinds. A bound volume has a charm in my eyes, similar to what scraps of manuscript possess for the good Mussulman. He imagines that those wind-wafted records are perhaps hallowed by some sacred verse, and I, that every new book, or antique one, may contain the open sesame, the spell to disclose treasures hidden in some unsuspected cave of truth. Thus it was not without sadness that I turned away from the library of the old man's. Blessed was the sunshine when it came again, at the close of another stormy day, beaming from the edge of the western horizon, while the massive firmament of clouds threw down all the gloom it could, but served only to kindle the golden light into a more brilliant glow by the strongly contrasted shadows. Heaven smiled at the earth, so long unseen, from beneath its heavy eyelid. Tomorrow for the hilltops and the wood-paths. 
or it might be that ellery channing came up the avenue to join me in a fishing excursion on the river strange and happy times were those when we cast aside all irksome forms and straight-laced habitudes and delivered ourselves up to the free air to live like the indians or any less conventional race during one bright semicircle of the sun rowing our boat against the current between wide meadows we turned aside into the Asabeth, a more lovely stream than this for a mile above its junction with the concord has never flowed on earth nowhere indeed except to lave the interior regions of a poet's imagination it is sheltered from the breeze by woods and a hillside so that elsewhere there might be a hurricane and here scarcely a ripple across the shaded water the current lingers along so gently that the mere force of the boatman's will seems sufficient to propel his craft against it it comes flowing softly through the midmost privacy and deepest heart of a wood which whispers it to be quiet while the stream whispers back again with its sedgy borders as if river and wood were hushing one another to sleep yes the river sleeps along its course and dreams of the sky and of the clustering foliage amid which fall showers of broken sunlight imparting specks of vivid cheerfulness in contrast with the quiet depth of the prevailing tint of all this scene the slumbering river has a dream picture in its bosom which after all was the most real the picture or the original the objects palpable to our grosser senses or their apotheosis in the stream beneath surely the disembodied images stand in closer relation to the soul but both the original and the reflection had here an ideal charm and had it been thought more mild i could have fancied that this river had strayed forth out of the rich scenery of my companion's inner world only the vegetation along its banks should then have had an oriental character gentle and obtrusive as the river is yet the tranquil woods seem hardly satisfied to allow it passage the trees are rooted on the very verge of the water and dip their pendant branches into it at one spot there is a lofty bank on the slope of which grow some hemlocks declining across the stream with outstretched arms as if resolute to take the plunge in other places the banks are almost on a level with the water so that the quiet congregation of trees set their feet in the flood and are fringed with foliage down to the surface cardinal flowers kindle their spiral flames and illuminate the dark nooks among the shrubbery the pond lily grows abundantly along the margin that delicious flower which as thoreau tells me opens its virgin bosom to the first sunlight and perfects its being through the magic of that genial kiss he has beheld beds of them unfolding in due succession as the sunrise stole gradually from flower to flower a sight not to be hoped for unless when a poet adjusts his inward eye to a proper focus with the outward organ grapevines here and there twine themselves around shrub and tree and hang their clusters over the water within reach of the boatman's hand 
oftentimes they unite two trees of alien race in an inextricable twine marrying the hemlock and the maple against their will and enriching them with a purple offspring of which neither is the parent one of these ambitious parasites has climbed into the upper branches of a tall white pine and is still ascending from bough to bough unsatisfied till it shall crown the tree's airy summit with a wreath of its broad foliage and a cluster of its grapes the winding course of the stream continually shut out the scene behind us and revealed as calm and lovely a one before we glided from depth to depth and breathed new seclusion at every turn the shy kingfisher flew from the withered branch close at hand to another at a distance uttering a shrill cry of anger or alarm ducks that had been floating there since the preceding eve were startled at our approach and skimmed along the glassy river breaking its dark surface with a bright streak the pickerel leaped from among the lily pads the turtle sunning itself upon a rock or at the root of a tree slid suddenly into the water with a plunge the painted indian who paddled his canoe along the Asabeth three hundred years ago could hardly have seen a wilder gentleness displayed upon its banks and reflected in its bosom than we did nor could the same indian have prepared his noontide meal with more simplicity we drew up our skiff at some point where the overarching shade formed a natural bower and there kindled a fire with the pine-cones and decayed branches that lay strewn plentifully around soon the smoke ascended among the trees impregnated with a savoury incense not heavy dull and surfeiting like the steam of cookery within doors but sprightly and piquant the smell of our feast was akin to the woodland odours with which it mingled there was no sacrifice committed by our intrusion there the sacred solitude was hospitable and granted us free leave to cook and eat in the recess that was at once our kitchen and banqueting hall it is strange what humble offices may be performed in a beautiful scene without destroying its poetry our fire bread gleaming among the trees and we beside it busied with culinary rites and spreading out our meal on a moss-grown log all seemed in unison with the river gliding by and the foliage rustling over us and what was the strangest neither did our mirth seem to disturb the propriety of the solemn woods although the hobgoblins of the old wilderness and the will-o'-the-wisps that glimmered in the marshy places might have come trooping to share our table-talk and have added their shrill laughter to our merriment it was the very spot in which to utter the extremest nonsense or the profoundest wisdom or that ethereal product of the mind which partakes of both and may become one or the other in correspondence with the faith and insight of the auditor so amid sunshine and shadow rustling leaves and sighing waters up gushed our talk like the babble of a fountain the evanescent spray was Ellery's, and his, too, the lumps of golden thought that lay glimmering in the fountain's bed and brightened both our faces by the reflection. Could he have drawn out that virgin gold and stamped it with the mint mark that alone gives currency, 
the world might have had a profit, and he the fame. My mind was the richer merely by the knowledge that it was there. But the chief profit of those wild days to him and me lay not in any definite idea, not in any angular or rounded truth which we dug out of the shapeless mass of problematical stuff, but in the freedom which we thereby won from all custom and conventionalism and fettering influences of man on man. We were so free to-day that it was impossible to be slaves again to-morrow. When we crossed the threshold of a house, or trod the thronged pavements of a city, still the leaves of the trees that overhung the Asabeth were whispering to us, Be free! Be free! Therefore, along that shady river-bank there are spots, marked with a heap of ashes and half-consumed brands, only less sacred in my remembrance than the hearth of a household fire. And yet how sweet, as we floated homeward adown the golden river at sunset, how sweet it was to return within the system of human society, not as to a dungeon and a chain, but as to a stately edifice whence we could go forth at will into statelier simplicity. How gently, too, did the sight of the old man's, best seen from the river, overshadowed with its willow and all environed about with the foliage of its orchard and avenue, how gently did its grey, homely aspect rebuke the speculative extravagances of the day! It had grown sacred in connection with the artificial life against which we invade. It had been a home for many years, in spite of all. It was my home, too, and with these thoughts it seemed to me that all the artifice and conventionalism of life was but an impalpable thinness upon its surface, and that the depth below was none the worse for it. Once, as we turned our boat to the bank, there was a cloud, in the shape of an immensely gigantic figure of a hound, couched above the house, as if keeping guard over it. Gazing at this symbol, I prayed that the upper influences might long protect the institutions that had grown out of the heart of mankind. End of Part 2